Yeah, it's been a joy to get to know uh, Aaron and even Matt. Uh, the first time I met Matt uh, was one of the more discouraging moments of my ministerial career. Uh, he looks at me and says, I hate Ohio. I mean, I hate Ohio. In our conversation, he said it five times. I hate Ohio. We had a good laugh about it. We still joke to this day about it. Um, yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. I, I greet you in Jesus from East North. Uh, there's, a, there's a cool relationship going on there. There's, they still feel bad about that final kickball score uh, last year, uh, and we're doing it again. We're, we're perfect streaks. We've got to keep it going. Uh, we're looking forward to that. Uh, yeah, he, so let me share a little bit about what God's doing in us and what God has done for us and in us. Uh, I have seen church planting uh, all my life. Uh, it's just the, the life that I, I lived and uh, there used to be a time in high school where I semi-resented kind of this adventurous, high-risk uh, church model uh, of planting churches and taking guys and uh, spending a, about a year with them in, in discipleship ministry. And literally, they almost felt like they were part of our family. And then we would launch them out across the, the nation and send a team of people to go. And I, I had a front row seat to all of that. So my church planting heart began there, yet I kind of... Uh, I kind of resented it all the way through high school until uh, Jesus met me on the road and uh, I saw his glory and responded to his grace and I'm very thankful for that. Uh, I kind of grew up in Greenville in, in some sort of way, Spartanburg, Greenville, so I'm very familiar with this area. It's been a home base for us, but uh, as soon as we kind of graduated from college and uh, married my wife Nikki, who's here uh, today as well, uh, we moved to Columbus, Ohio uh, to pursue ministry of our own. And God grew our heart for those people and for that city. Uh, we stayed there for about six years. Uh, we saw a lot of success in ministry, made a lot of friends, and kind of, kind of felt like we had left, uh, left the door open towards ministry uh, back in Columbus when God called us back to Heritage Bible Church in Greer, uh, where I served as a youth pastor for two years. And uh, kind of on a whim, I met this man named Todd Perkins, who said, hey, are you interested in church planting? And I said, oh, that's been on my heart. Uh, it's, been a, it's been a passion of mine and a desire to see what God would do. And he said, well, let's, let's go. Let's try this thing. Uh, so about a year ago, we sold our house in Greer. We live, uh, if you know where East North Church is, it's on East North Street next to Mitchell Road Elementary School. Uh, we actually live on the property. There's a parsonage tucked up behind. Uh, so we live with a bunch of wild mice. And uh, I killed a goose last week. Long story short, so it's a cra- in the backwoods, it's crazy, but we love it. And uh, we were able to see the grace of God working in our lives, so we're excited. Uh, I'll share three things about our church planting vision. Uh, number one, we are very excited because God's already moving. Uh, God is already at work, and we kind of feel like we're in catch-up mode to Him. Uh, we get up there about once a month or so, and every time we go up there, it's amazing to see God pave the road for what he plans to do with us, and we just kind of are in discovery mode. Like, we, we, we have our own plans, our own expectations, and we're kind of just wadding them up and throwing them away as we realize it seems like God's making a plan here, uh, and we need to have a plan. We're working on that, but it does seem like God's already on the move. We already have about 20 to 25 people who are in prayer and in conversations with us uh, about joining our plant and we are very excited about that. So you can pray for them, that God would be clear in their lives. Uh, the number two thing, we do need money. So if you have some, we'd love some. Uh, we are church planting, and what we're realizing is that, man, uh, what God has called us to do, um, we, we humbly do not have what we need to do that, but God will provide. We believe that. Uh, what he says we must do, he does provide for and so we're learning to humbly lean on people, and it's a, it's a great experience for us. So I just throw that out there for you all to sit on. Uh, and then third, please pray for us. Please pray for us. Um, I'm convinced of this, that nothing happens from, from God's perspective. Nothing happens apart from prayer. Somebody's praying all the time, whether it's the person of Jesus himself as our great high priest, always making intercession for us, whether it's the spirit who's taking our groans and our utterances and bringing them before God, or whether it's the church of God, people that you know and people that you don't know who are praying, nothing happens from God's perspective without prayer. And I'm convinced, I mean, our church plant won't happen unless somebody's praying. Uh, 
And so I'm asking you to join in that effort. Would you pray for us? Would you pray for us as God, as God leads us? All right, uh, enough, about, enough about the church plant. I want to spend some time in the Word. Matthew 18, if you will. Matthew 18. As you're turning, by the way, I do, I do have some cards in the back table uh, there. You can see me afterwards as well. I do have some personally, but there's also some, some cards on the table you can take and put on your fridge or use as bookmarks, uh, whatever you want to do. Matthew 18, let me say a prayer and then we'll, we'll look into the word. Great God, your word is a light unto our paths and lamp, a lamp for our feet. And we echo the words of Jesus when he says that we will not live by bread alone, but we will truly live by every word that comes out of your mouth. And so, Father, we ask that we would have ears to hear and hearts to understand and eyes to see and hands to move. We pray these things because your glory is great and you are jealous for it and we are desperate for good. And we pray these things through him. Amen. I love being a pastor. I, I'll be honest with you, I love being a Christian. I, I didn't always used to love it. I always kind of wore it as kind of like a, eh. And there are moments for sure where I don't always love it. But most of the time, I smile when I think about the fact that I'm a pastor, or I'm a Christian, or I'm involved in a church. And I think one of the reasons for that is because I, I firmly believe in this experience, and I hope you can share it, that in this world, there's just too much judgment. Now, sure, this judgment can be in the church as well. And this judgment can come from your family. This judgment can come from myself. But in, in this world that I see every day, I'm convinced there's just too much judgment. And what there's too little of is forgiveness. I met with a buddy yesterday, and uh, he was, you know, I, we were at a out of town at a conference all week, and I got in town, and he knew I was in town. He said, let's meet, let's meet. I said, like, buddy, let me just, like, sleep. I'm exhausted. Let's, let me just sleep. He's like, all right, all right, I'm, I'm free Saturday. You, you, free, you, you free Saturday? Let's, let's go Saturday. Right, I, I got to talk. I got to talk. I'm like, yeah, let's, let's go, let's go. I knew something was up. And uh, sat down with him, and it turns out he was just guilty. And he had a lot to confess. And it reminded me of this experience that in this world there's just too much judgment and what there is too little of is forgiveness and it is a blessing when you find it. That's why I love being a Christian because I actually feel like being a Christian, we have the secret sauce of life. We have this forgiveness in our message, in our doctrine, in our theology. I love being part of the church where from Jesus Christ, there's this fountain that overflows from his church of forgiveness. Now I understand, that's not experientially true all the time. But at least in theory, I smile when I think about, we have this. I mean, you guys, you guys know. I mean, go, go online. Pull up, your, pull up your Twitter feed. Pull up your Facebook timeline. What, what are you going to see? Are you going to find judgment or are you going to find full and free forgiveness? Turn on the news sources, especially go, go to that opposite channel. You know which one I'm talking about, that opposite news channel, the one you won't watch, and ask yourself, is there, is there too much judgment or is there really too much forgiveness of the other side? Go, go to your house, live with your spouse, live with your kids, and just pop the question, do you think in this house there's too much judgment or do you feel like there's too much forgiveness here? And the amazing thing is, here, we have a story here in the Bible where we're confronted with this reality of can there be too much forgiveness? I want to direct your attention to Matthew 18, verse 21. Peter came up to Jesus and said to him, Lord, 
How often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven, or 77 times. The people in Jesus' day understood judgment. They got it. They wrestled with it. They faced it every day, especially in a very strict Jewish context. The apostles and disciples, they, they would have wrestled with this idea of judgment. They would have faced it. Any modern-day person living in that time under either Roman oppression or under the Jewish religion would have faced this reality of, of pure judgment. Whether or not you're living up to the law, you're living up to the standards, whether or not God was fully happy with you, whether or not you were happy with yourself, or whether anyone else in the religious context was happy with you, the people of Jesus' day knew all about judgment. You could even say that the Jewish motto would be, do this and live, right? Speaking of the law, do this and live. Want to be happy, want to live life well, want to have a good life, want to be seen well, okay, do this and live. And it's amazing, as, as much as they would seek to do this and live, we have this little insight into the Jewish religion, and just religion in general, and sometimes even life in general, that the, the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. The structure itself, the, the life by judgment structure, the life by do's and don'ts structure, was never actually meant to alleviate the sin problem. It was never designed or orchestrated in in a way that would actually relieve the guilt and the pressure we all face within and without. It was this system of exhaustion with no benefit of actual forgiveness. Jesus comes into this world and he begins to deconstruct this world of judgment and he ends up paying for it. But you you can begin to see the confusion of Jesus' kingdom mindset begin to play into the disciples, those close to Jesus, and even those who are opposed to him, and even the people who found forgiveness in the most obscure places. The entrance of mercy and forgiveness into a context of judgment was really difficult to grasp. And if you're honest with yourself, it can be all too good to be true even for us today. And really, in a way of deconstructing a world of judgment, Jesus actually does something amazing. He actually clarifies or or raises the bar on the law. Takes it up a notch. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say, whoever looks on a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in his heart. And, And Jesus isn't seeking to ramp up this context of judgment For judgment's sake. Jesus is trying to ramp up this context of judgment for the sake of a brand new life. For the sake of a brand new thing entering into the world. And it's this thing of mercy. It's this thing of forgiveness. Where all of us fall short under the weight of judgment. And are crying out for full and free mercy. He proclaims a radical gospel, a complete forgiveness with no conditions. In the fourth context, in the fourth discourse here of Matthew, we begin to have another unveiling of of Jesus' kingdom teaching here, and you can begin to really sense the confusion here of the disciples. In fact, just look real quick at the end of chapter 16, and if you have chapter headings, you can kind of see how the the message of the kingdom is going to play on the psyche and the the mental wear of of Peter specifically. Uh, If you go to 16 verse 21, Jesus foretells his death and resurrection. You got to imagine they're like, wait, what? You're going to die, but what about the kingdom you've been talking about? You're going to go away, you're going to die, I don't, under, I don't understand. And resurrection, I'm not sure that's a thing, Jesus. And then Jesus is, is, is saying, yeah, and if, if you're going to follow me, you've got to come there too. You, you've got to take up your own cross, and you've got to die, and you must find resurrection within me as well. And then, after all that kind of humble speak, you see this transfiguration and you see Jesus in all of his glory and you can see the disciples saying like, yes, we're going to be awesome. 
This judgment thing's finally going to pay off. We're finally going to transcend the judgment, and we too are going to be glorious. It's going to be great. And Jesus heals the, the boy with the demon. They're like rocking and rolling, and they're thinking, yes, we're, we are great. And it even le- led, uh, leads them to think in chapter 18, who's going to be the greatest? Is it going to be me? Is it going to be you? Who, out of all of this uh, tribe here of transcendent judgmenters, are we, who, who's going to be the greatest out of all of that? And then Jesus tells more crazy stories about a lost sheep. And Jesus isn't about the 99 who are doing well. Jesus is about the one who is lost. And then he talks about restoring a brother who's totally screwed it up at the, at the uh, middle part of 18. This, this is how we restore. It, it's not about shooing people away. It's about restoring the broken to the body. And then you get to our passage where Peter's like, okay, all right, all right. I, th- I, think, I think I'm starting to get it, Jesus. There's some, there's some mercy as part of this kingdom experience. Okay, so I've heard it said that, you know, the priest would tell me that I need to forgive three times before I start condemning people. So I've got an idea, Jesus. What if I up that to seven? And, and Jesus is like, nah. You missed it. This, is, this isn't about do's and don'ts. This isn't about measuring sticks at all. I say to you, 70 times 7. And that's shorthand. That's because that's, you might be tempted to think, all right, now we have 77 times. That's, if you've thought, if you've concluded that, that you've kind of missed it. What Jesus is trying to say is don't think number. Don't think number here. In infinity times. Of forgiveness. So when Peter begins to ask this question, how much mercy does this broken world need? How, how much forgiveness does my Facebook friend need? How much mercy does my spouse need? How much forgiveness do my kids need? There's no answer there. There's no, there's no qualitative number. Jesus says infinity times. And then he tells a story. And so what I want to do is I, I want to read this story and I simply want to highlight three theological statements that will help us gain clarity into this question. How much mercy is enough for this broken world? How much mercy is enough for this broken world? Number one, I want us to see the debt of your sin is something you can never repay. Let's start, let's start there. The debt of your sin is something you can never repay. Look with me at verse 23. Here's Jesus' story. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. So this story, it is a story. It's not a true story. It's a fictional story. It's called a parable, made to illustrate a deep truth that Jesus is trying to communicate. And you begin to can draw some lines of, of who's who and what's what in this story. And we see that the king or the master here is Jesus himself, the judge and the ruler and owner of all things, and that we are his servants. And what you begin to see first and foremost is that this king is coming to settle debts. And this can sound like doom and gloom, but it also can ring true in your ear, especially if you already feel this sense of judgment. The reality of the king and the judge of the universe, Jesus himself, is that one day he is coming back to settle all debts. And I don't want you to be unaware of that day. In fact, as a preacher and as a pastor, I want to bring to the forefront that because Jesus owns the title of king and creator of all and judge and ruler of all, there is that day coming for you and for me as well. He's coming to settle all debts. 
And in this story, this, this servant is owing 10,000 talents. Now, we don't speak that kind of language, but think about it this way. One talent is 20 years wages. 20 years wages. So if you're 40 and you're approaching retirement, whatever you make between now and between your retirement, that's one talent. It's one. And this guy owed 10,000 of those talents. Some have even estimated that this is like colloquially in the $6 billion range. And again, I don't think Jesus is really trying to make clear the numeric value here as much as he's just trying to blow your mind. This payback thing ain't happening, right? This is, this is not something that, that you could hope. I mean, you're already in debt. You've already started working. And for whatever reason, you're in $6 billion worth of debt. I don't know how that happens. I, I really don't. I don't see enough money come through my own hands to be able to rationalize how that could actually happen. But I don't think that's Jesus' point at all. I think what he's simply saying here is, let, let me tell you a story about a man who deserved to die. And it even, it even comes out that this man is being sold not just with his life, but with the life of his wife and kids. Like, this man is being erased from the history book. His lineage is being cut short. His name is being wiped clean. This man has a debt to pay that, that would just annihilate this man. No, no hope of getting out of this. How, how, how could you ever think to repay? Six billion dollars. 10,000 20-year wages of debt. Impossible. We have an infinite debt. And it says that he, he could not pay. When you begin to realize... Let's, let's, let's take the do's and don'ts, measuring sticks, judgment world. Let's, let's take that approach into this context. And you, be, you really begin to understand that even those good things that you're doing, the strides that you're making, the advances that you're gaining on this debt are just drops in the ocean. It, it's almost like, why try? It, it's almost like there's, it doesn't matter. You're doing good things. Okay. Like, cool. I don't even know the numbers to be able to process. Like, I don't know, pay a dollar. I don't, I don't know what that means. You're just in debt. Like, your life is owed. Sold with his wife and children, everything this man owned was being asked of him in payment. Because we have an infinite debt, Our only plea is for mercy. That's all we have. The only plea we have is for mercy. There's no other argument. This man ends up asking for more things, astonishingly. And this this can reveal a lot about our own hearts and our own desire for for payback. To show God, God, I, I may not have everything, but I have something to offer you. I have something to give. I might not be perfect as you demand, but I have some good works. I have some skin in this game. The man, the man says, have, have patience with me. You know what I need, God? I just need more time. Just give me another year. No time is not going to cut it. This reminds me of like Isaiah 64. You know this passage. We have all become like one who is unclean and all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind, they take us away. It's like time can't be, can't be leveraged in this scenario to help you. He says, I will repay you everything. I mean, it may be a good desire, maybe, but you kind of start to think, like, maybe this guy's also really arrogant. Maybe he doesn't really understand. Maybe he thinks too highly of himself to come with all of his works and all of his energies and with his time and think that he could get it back. The only thing that this man needs to say is nothing at all. Just simply ask for mercy. 
As one author said, the primary thing to do in reference to earning God's forgiveness is to recognize that there's nothing you can do to earn it. It's, it's, it's this plea of, I've got nothing. There's no way. God's forgiveness, if you are ever going to earn it, which you can't do, God's forgiveness is not given on account of judgment. That is good or bad. God's forgiveness is not won on account of judgment. It's simply given on account of mercy. There's no other way to earn God's mercy. So the first thing we must realize is that you and I, we have this debt in our, in our natural self, apart from the person and work of Jesus, we have this sin debt that we could never repay. We'll see a little later on, that is something we actually need to own. Something that actually helps us down the road. Number two, the forgiveness and the mercy of God is full and free. The forgiveness, the mercy of God is full and free. Look with me at uh, verse 27. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Amen. Out of pity for this man and his condition, the master forgave him the debt. The first thing you see is that this forgiveness is full. No halvesies. No, you come this far, I'll come this far. It was full mercy, full forgiveness. The slate wiped clean. The accounts settled. Everything's done. And it was totally for free. No conditions, no qualifications for this man, no prerequisites. If you even realize this man says, give me more time, I can pay. His attitude is not set towards the mercy of God. He's not even looking for the mercy of God. God's mercy initiates towards him undeservedly so. We call this sovereign mercy or sovereign grace. Where the very thing that God requires in Jesus, God gives first. The response follows. He ushers, Lazarus, come forth, and then there is life. It doesn't work the other way around. It's full and it's free. This reminds me of Romans 9 where God clearly says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And so it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. This is, this is for you and for me. We, yes, we have this sin debt that we owe, but my friend, the infinite mercy of God has come to you in the, in the person and work of Jesus through the mouth of a preacher or in the bread and wine or in your baptism, and he promises you, it's all forgiven in my name. As, as Luther says in the 28th note of the Heidelberg Disputation, one of my favorite notes in the whole work, he says this, the love of God does not find but creates that which is pleasing to it. The love of God does not find, but rather creates that which is pleasing to it. So this, this man longs for mercy in a transformed heart. And with no attitude or disposition towards receiving it, God freely gives first and transforms him anyway. My friend, you can, you can easily view yourself as too far gone. You can easily view yourself and rightfully view yourself as one who has an impossible debt that he cannot pay to the point where your life is reckoned of you on that day and you deserve to die. And all of that is true, but my friend, the reality of the gospel the reality of Jesus Christ and the heartbeat of God himself is not that you would succumb to his judgment, that you would see and delight in his mercy. So whatever you have done, whoever you are, wherever you were born into whatever situation, context, family you were born into, 
wherever you have been and whatever you've seen with your eyes and whoever you have slept with and whatever you have smoked and whatever you're addicted to and no matter how great your debt, the mercy of God is greater than his judgment. He loves you and he forgives you. It's full and it's free. No conditions, no requirements. I want to read for you my, one, of my, one of my favorite psalms. I've, they're all my favorite, right? They're all your favorite. Psalm 103. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses and his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. He knows our frame and he remembers that we are dust. That's the, the heartbeat of God. In the face of your sin debt, the heartbeat of God is not that you would receive the full bore of his justice, but that through justice you would, you would see actually and experience and receive his mercy. Theological truth number three. Rejecting God's priority of mercy will inevitably lead to a life of judgment. Rejecting God's priority of mercy or forgiveness will inevitably lead to a life of judgment on the ground or on the experience of your life. Uh, Verse 28, going back to our text. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, And seizing him, began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then the master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant! I forgave you all of that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all of his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This man had just received this new lease on life through the infinite and even scandalous mercy of God. And you begin, you begin to see what you see in our own hearts, that though we know the realities of the gospel, though we have experienced the mercy of God in even more unbelievable ways than we can begin to, to know or to think, our propensity towards judgment is still so strong. And, I, and I, I really, I think I kind of get this experience here. Because even as a Christian, maybe you've grown up in church and, and lived your life in the church, you can easily, easily begin to think that the mercy that God has shown you is something that overall, you would never write it down like this, but overall, it's something that God deserves to give you. You, you, you kind of, yeah you know, God just will do that. And you, you can begin to forget how needy you are apart from Christ. And then when it comes to a smaller debt, which, which think about it, I mean, $6 billion, again, I'm not, I'm not dropping a penny in that. That's, that's not going to work. But, but, whatever this guy owed, 100 denarii, so it's a hundred days wages. Maybe like, what, $16,000 or so? 
according to the average, $16,000. Listen, I might not be able to contribute to $6 billion, but I think my neighbor can start to contribute to that $16,000. In fact, he kind of should for justice's sake. $16,000, that's doable. That's manageable. And, and when, we for, when we forget the, the sphere of mercy or the transformation of mercy and we begin to exact payment based upon manageability from our, our spouse, our, our wife, our husband, our kids, and we begin to think, no, listen, they should be able to pull this off. They should be able to get their stuff in a pile enough to orchestrate some level of payback here. And, and manageability becomes, becomes the thing, which again goes back to this idea of judgment. It puts it back on the do and don't scale. But this is, this is easily how we live. And I, 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 can, I can sympathize with this man. It's clearly wrong. But I can sympathize with this man. I've been forgiven much. I know that. But come on. Your debt is it's kind of easy in comparison to what I had to pay. You, you can do this. In fact, let's just let's get you in church, right? I'll sign you up for a discipleship class. We'll do it together. And and you begin to see how warped and twisted judgment works on our minds and how, how easy it is to slip into that. When mercy is your only plea, mercy makes sense. But when payback is possible, we tend to totally reject the notion of mercy. This begins to raise the question regarding what I see as a beautiful relationship between mercy and justice. Because shouldn't people pay back debts? Shouldn't your spouse come clean? Isn't that what God would want? Begins to, begins to raise some questions about this idea of, of mercy and forgiveness. Does mercy full and free, that's great for me on a salvation level, but does that really work in my experience with my kids? I mean, what if, what if I give them full and free forgiveness? What would happen then? The truth is, mercy and justice cannot exist without one another. And it is beautiful. If you imagine mercy without justice, it really just becomes, at best, leniency. And that's not good. We don't want that. We're not trying to bend the rules here. We're not, we're not trying to call an apple an orange. We don't want to bend the rules and just merely become lenient. But at worst, it can even become abusive. And we've seen that go south. When, When there's this idea of mercy, but there's no justice. There's no pure right and wrong. They, they have to be together. Mercy can only be seen through this lens of justice. But in the same way, justice without mercy, well, well who has ever been transformed through condemnation? Who, who, who has ever fully been renovated from the inside out under, under do's and don'ts? At, just look at your kids. How many of them turned out well because they, were, they, were gro- they have grown up under this law-based mentality. Have, haven't they actually been transformed when in their weakest moments they received an unconditional hug? Haven't, haven't they seen greater things of this life? And haven't even their hearts turned soft because they were offered a word of love or extended forgiveness in a time of need and in a time of crisis? And so even this idea of, of justice begins to take on new shape when we begin to see this, this, this com, uh, combining mercy of God mixed with it in a beautiful way. And in fact, this is exactly what we begin to see in Jesus. And Paul in Romans is, is very clear. The, the whole design of the law is so that every mouth may be stopped, so judgment may be silenced. And yet, in verse 21 of Romans 3, we begin to see that God's righteousness is revealed through the law, but though apart from it. It's not 
God's righteousness is not fully revealed merely through the law of do's and don'ts and this holy righteous standard. There's another revelation that the law and prophets bear witness to it. It is through that that you actually begin to see the person of Jesus being born into this world. And Paul says it's the righteousness of God being revealed for faith in Jesus Christ. It's, it's, it's apart from the law. And he says, even through the law, all have sinned in verse 23. You know that passage. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But don't forget verse 24, where all have been justified freely by his grace. And it's this new, this new revelation of what the righteousness of God is through Jesus' redemption. And so that at the end, the whole point is that we might understand God's righteousness. It is Jesus himself, the judge and creator of the earth, who is both just and the justifier of the one who would have faith in Jesus. The righteousness of God revealed. What is right in this world? What is right in the throne room of heaven? That Jesus, the ruler and judge of all, is both just and and justifier of the one who would have faith in him. Mercy and justice must mix together. See, we will always return to a life of judgment when we forget that justice paves the way for the transforming power of God's mercy. Mercy is the final say. Mercy triumphs over God's judgment. I want to explain verse 35. It can, it can hit hard. And I think that's intentional. And even I was talking with my wife this morning as we were discussing and reading through this. She's like, is there any hope at the end of this? And there is. There is. I think this warning is actually a parting shot of hope. There is a warning and I don't, want to, I don't want to diminish that at all. But I also do think there's hope. Verse 35. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. If I could state it positively, I know scripture didn't say it positively, I want you to hear it negatively from there, but I also think it can be helpful to spin it, to spin it positively. Those who have received the mercy of God full and free have transformed hearts that live in the freedom of mercy on the ground. It's just the reality. It's the reality. Those who have received the mercy of God, who know their debt, who own their debt, and their only plea is for mercy, that mercy transforms the heart and it actually plays out in the relationships and in the spheres of life. It's it's a natural work of the, the fruit of what the Spirit accomplishes in the life of a believer through redemption. And to to say it back again negatively, if you've never experienced the mercy of God full and free by the confession and repentance of your own sin and trusting in the full sufficiency of the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. And if you've never experienced that, then how could you ever live a life of mercy? It will only be a life of judgment. And the, the, on, the only people, if I can say it very, very bluntly, the only people who get into heaven are those who have been wrecked by mercy and forgive freely. It's not works righteousness, it's just righteousness being worked. And that's the hope. That what this world craves for, that that question at the beginning of how much mercy is needed for this broken world, infinite. This world needs infinite amount of mercy and forgiveness. In no circumstance or context of your life is there too much forgiveness. And that's a shame. Maybe, maybe hopefully the church can be that place. And I know that we're broken people and that's a stretch, but I hope that can happen. And I think it can happen. But at the same time, we, we long for mercy. We long for it. And it's possible possible and even promised by God through his spirit, through the mercy found in Jesus Christ. Now listen, I also, I, I was praying for this yesterday and, and today because the reality is this is easy to talk about in this sphere. I have, I have enjoyed, by God's grace, some level of clean life in the sense of I have not had a lot of sin done to me. I've had some sin done to me and it's hurt. 
But some of you have had unspeakable pain done to you. And this notion is very difficult to grasp. And so I, I have prayed that in some way, in ways that are really impossible for me to do, that the Spirit of God would smoothly and, and gently, like pure peanut butter on toast, just smooth this across your heart in a very patient and loving way. Because I, I can imagine somebody being in a, in a position of, of hurt and utter pain because of the disasters of this life. And I can imagine you must forgive as, as being this unbelievable burden and weight to bear. And I just want to present to you some just brief, quick thoughts about how I think that this is actually really hopeful. The mercy of God, where everything is fixed in the person and work of Jesus on his cross, but also in his return when it's all actually said and done. It is finished, but it also, it isn't finished. He's coming back and he's going to settle accounts and he's going to make all things new. That, that putting every ounce of your faith, not in retribution or not in the freedom of pain, but in those moments may liberate you from the, the burden of bitterness. There is, un, there is freedom there for your soul. And it's not going to stop the pain, but it may, it may keep bitterness from adding to the pain and crippling your soul. Beyond that, it may free you. Those moments, the, the cross, the empty tomb, and his coming back again, putting all the eggs into those baskets, may free you from the burden of being the judge of whoever it is that sinned against you. And that's, that, is, that is heavy for you to bear. Too heavy. And, and suffice it to say that even doing the worst things you would want to do in retribution could never pay the debt that that person owes against you for their sin. As, as Jesus himself, as Paul says about Jesus, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. God, because, just because God prioritizes mercy does not mean that God is averse to his judgment. He remembers the sins done against his people and he will pay. He will dole out. Justice will be enacted. It will happen. But I want to free you from the burden of being the judge in that situation. But also understand that just because it was easy to forgive yesterday doesn't mean that it's going to be easy to forgive today. I even take a little comfort from the fact that Peter's, Peter's asking, Lord, how many times? Seven times? And you, you, might, you might have another number. You might say, it's been every day of my life I've had to forgive that person. And Peter's asking the same question. How many times do I have to forgive and Jesus is giving a, a tip of the cap to that experience and he's saying, you're going to have to forgive infinitely and it's okay. It's not forgive and forget. How could you? But it is every day you can find the freedom of forgiveness, freedom from bitterness, freedom from judgment in the person and work of Jesus. And because of the brokenness of this world, because of the brokenness of your heart and mind, that's going to be an everyday experience. And praise God, I hope I hope that a church like this would come around you and support you and offer you bread and wine and preach the gospel so that all of those things are clear in every way to you that you are loved and forgiven in Jesus and that justice is coming. As we wrap up, I simply, I simply want to take these truths and put them towards, towards an applicational note, if I could. You and I, if we are going to forgive as Jesus forgives we need to own the reality of our sin. It's remarkable to think that I'm 31 and I've already killed a person. Sometimes that statement stops me short of breathing, where I just... But at the same time, you and I, you and I need to own that. Because it's true. Remember what Paul said as he's preaching the gospel through Acts 2. This Jesus whom you killed, this Jesus whom you've killed, 
That was you. That was you. It was me. Because of our sin, we owed a debt. Somebody stepped in and paid a debt. His blood is on our hands. It's an infinite debt. You and I must own that. But you know what? To a watching world, I think they're ready to hear that confession from us. I think they're ready to hear that confession from us as a Christian community. I think they've, they've seen a lot of the shrine, the, the hollowed out tombs, the whitewashed tombs. I think they've seen enough of that and they're just ready for a, that was me. I own my sin. My debt's too great. I need mercy. I'm not trying to pay it back. I can't. I need mercy. Secondly, see the cross and rest in his mercy. We champion the cross. We champion it. It's our only hope. It's our only everything. The cross, the resurrection, Jesus' work, the gospel. It's the one thing. I mean, inscribe, tattoo it, whatever you got to do. It's your everything. Celebrate it, placard it, preach it, proclaim it. It's everything to us. It's everything to us. Let it be everything for you and rest in there. Don't rest in your progress. Don't rest in your ability to pay back the debt. You'll never pay it. Rest in the sufficiency of it is finished. Those, those words that came out of Jesus' mouth, were, which were meant for your heart to hear, rest in that. And then number three, you are free to value mercy over judgment. With your kids, you're freed up by Jesus, by his sacrifice, to value mercy over judgment. Again, we're not offering leniency here. My kids, it was a struggle, man. They needed to learn how to sit. They needed to learn how to sing. They got to learn how to get that done without fighting back. That's going to happen. It takes time. All right? So I'm not, I'm not giving up leniency. I'm not giving up the justice stick. All right? But at the same time, my kids need to know that there is more mercy than there is judgment from us as a Christian father and Christian mother and as a Christian church. The mercy of God reigns here. They need to know that. You need to know that for your own soul. And wherever your Facebook timeline or, or Twitter feed leads you, whatever your coworker has to say, the watching world is waiting, not for more judgment because they face enough of that. They're waiting. Is there one place in the world where you can have too much forgiveness? And God has commissioned you for that. As Paul said, God has called us as missionaries of mercy, of ministers of mercy, to be able to bring this world into reconciliation with Jesus. He's put that on your lips, and he's given us that, that task. Will you do that this week? Will you do that? At home, at work, online, wherever God takes you, you're forgiven and freed for mercy's sake. Let's do it. Let's pray. Father, we give you praise for all that Jesus has done for us and all that Jesus has done in us and to us. And we pray for more that his mercy would come and continue to free us from our sin, even as he has already freed us forever from its power. And I pray that you would give us the ability to, to live in this triumphant mercy that you've given us. Father, I pray for anyone here who is deeply hurting because of this life. I hear more than anything that they've heard this morning that they would hear that in Jesus all of their sins are forgiven, they've been washed clean by the blood of the Lamb, and there is a place for them in heaven because of the work of your Son. We pray these things through him. Amen.